You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. A family reunites after the actions of a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan donates thousands of masks to their local hospital. A good Samaritan pays for the tires of the stranger behind them in line. If you go to Google and search the words Good Samaritan, you will find thousands of headlines that read just like those. We love these two words in our culture. Whether you're secular or religious, they've woven into every part of our lives. We name hospitals and clinics after the Good Samaritan. And many times when we talk about it in our culture, we spend a a good amount of time discussing the moral aptitude or excellence of this random person who does an act of kindness, right? So you've got this guy, Jeff, and Jeff is just a great dude, and he finds himself in a great situation to help people, and so he does, and then we lift up Jeff, and we interview Jeff and write news stories about Jeff. Jeff is just this incredible person. If we could just be more like Jeff, the rest of us in our world, if we could just pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps, then, then we could actually solve some problems. It's all about moral excellence and elevating ourselves, using that Good Samaritan example as a way to build our own moral aptitude. And I understand that sentiment. We live in a broken world and we want to see things healed. There's just one problem, the actual story of the Good Samaritan. See, it's not written, it's not spoken by Jesus in order to uh, inspire us to lift ourselves up by our own moral willpower. That's not the design of the story and that's not the design of Jesus's ministry. And so the way that we have understood it as a culture often gets away from the meaning of the actual text. So in our next installment in the series we're calling Enduring Questions, we're going to take another look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I think what we're going to find here is not a nice, good, moral example that we can strive to be like, but we're instead going to find something far, far more transformative and powerful in this story. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to Luke chapter 10. Verses 25 through 37 is where we're going to be. Luke is in the New Testament. It's uh, the third book in your New Testament, if you're flipping there. Chapter 10, starting in verse 25. We'll have the words up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, well, what's written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you've given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of them, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think 
was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So good stories, good narratives have movements to them. Rising action and falling action and climaxes and character developments and plot developments. And the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in this book is similar. There's movements to this story. And in Luke chapter 10, what we just read from, we've just passed one of the main movements in Luke. See, for the first eight and a half or so chapters, Jesus has spent most of his ministry talking about his identity, who he is, and why he's come. We get language from him. He describes himself as the son of man who's come to bring the kingdom of God, which are very religious terms that are loaded in scripture. He's functionally saying that uh, I have come to redeem and restore everything in the world that's been broken, in people and in our planet. See, at the beginning of this story, heaven and earth are unified. The whole point of creation is that heaven and earth can work together to flourish, that humans live in unity with God, unity with one another, and unity with creation. And humans decide, cool, I think we can do a better job, though. I think we can define life and flourishing on our own. And so the design of heaven and earth unity gets fractured. And God, immediately from that point forward, says, I'm going to redeem and restore this, and I'm going to do it through a particular family from which a son of man will come, a Messiah will come. And that Messiah is going to bring unity back between heaven and earth. That's the kingdom of God. And so Jesus has been going around the ancient world talking about how that reality has arrived in him. Heaven and earth are coming back together in him. And when you see him perform miracles, when you see him teach, when you see him interact with people, it's always about heaven and earth being reunified again. He's inviting us to follow him in that. And then at about chapter 9, right in the middle of chapter 9, a shift happens, and Jesus starts talking about what it means for us to participate in that unity. So eight and a half chapters, we get here's what the unity looks like, and now we get how do we follow Jesus and become a part of that unity. So in chapter 9, there's rumors spreading about who Jesus is. He's been doing these crazy things, miracles and teachings, and people are wondering, who is he? Is he a Messiah? Is he a prophet? Is he a heretic? Is he out of his mind? So Jesus is asking his closest followers. He gets them near to him, and he says, who do you say that I am? Amidst all of these things going on in our world, who do you say that I am? And Peter, one of the more boisterous and bold disciples, stands up and says, the Messiah, you are the one who has come to bring redemption and restoration to all things, to forgive our sins and heal our brokenness. Peter gives the right answer. But what's fascinating is Jesus' response to Peter. Some of you may remember these words from Jesus. He says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Those are some strong words, right? Peter gave the right answer here. He said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus' immediate response is, cool. If you believe that, then it's going to cause you to die. Every day of your life, not just physically. Peter does end up dying for Jesus physically, but he also has to give up his life bit by bit, over and over to the priorities of the kingdom of God. This nice celebratory moment where Peter names who Jesus is results in Jesus saying, hey, cool, if you believe that, you got to follow me in every part of your life. It's going to change how you define yourself. It's going to change how you define God, how you define your friends and your enemies, how you define your money and your work. Every part of your life is going to be transformed if you really believe that I have come to bring heaven and earth back together. 
And so what we're seeing in Luke as we come into chapter 10 here is the connectedness of our belief with our action. To be a Christian is not simply to believe certain ideas, friends. It's to actually be transformed by those ideas in our lives, to be a different sort of person slowly each and every day, a person whose entire life is transformed by what Jesus has done. So that's the interaction that informs chapter 9 and this big shift that Luke is making. Then Jesus sends out his disciples as missionaries across the ancient world, and then we come to this story here. So this connectedness of belief and action is already in our minds in the narrative. We're looking for the ways that we can follow Jesus more closely in the story. And there's three things in this Good Samaritan parable that Jesus says we have to give up as Christians. We have to die to. So the first of them, we have to stop self-justification. Second, we have to live without loopholes. And third, we have to dedicate every day to dying. Stop self-justification, live without loopholes, and dedicate to dying. Let's look at the first one. Stopping self-justification. So at the start of this narrative, Jesus is approached by a lawyer, we learn. And the lawyer is not what we tend to picture uh, as a lawyer in our day. Uh, It's not even like lawyers from hundreds of years ago with the powdered wigs, right? Very different. This is a religious lawyer. This is somebody who studied the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, really, really well. They know the law of God. And this lawyer approaches Jesus because he's heard that Jesus is saying some stuff about the law of God. He's saying some stuff about the kingdom of God, and he wants to make sure that Jesus is up to code. He's kind of the scripture police, approaching Jesus and seeing if he's actually uh, approaching the law of God effectively. You guys know when you ride in an elevator, they have that little sheet of paper that shows you the last time the elevator was reviewed? You guys know what I'm talking about? They put a little date on there so we can be confident when we get in it. Like, oh, okay, we're good. We still got a few months before this has to be reviewed. That's what this lawyer is doing for Jesus. He's making sure that Jesus is up to code with the law. And so he asks a basic question. This is a question that people in that day asked often. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, eternal life is borrowing again from the Old Testament scriptures. It's talking about what must I do to participate in God's work in the world? What must I do to be a part of the kingdom of God? And there's a subtlety in the question that we often miss, but it's, it's quite interesting. Look at the question he asks here. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you do anything to get an inheritance? No, right? An inheritance is just given to you based on the status that you have. It's not something you earn. And so already, right off the bat, we're seeing that this lawyer is living with a view of the world that says, I need to do things to get on God's right side. I need to do things in order to participate in what God is doing. He's seeing human moral earning as the primary way to participate in the kingdom. And Jesus catches on to that and does the classic rabbi thing of asking a question back to a question. If you're ever not sure and you want to dig a little bit deeper, ask a question back to someone who asks you a question. You will find the question underneath their question. There's a famous quote uh, by a guy named Woody Allen, former film director, uh, who was raised Jewish and is familiar with rabbinical teachings. And he was asked one time, why is it the Jewish teachers or rabbis always ask questions in response to questions? And he thought about it for a while. And then he responded, why shouldn't they ask questions in response to questions? It helps us dig to the assumptions underneath the question. And then the lawyer quickly spouts off in this story the exact verbatim uh, 
consensus in that day of what it meant to be a part of the kingdom of God. Love God with every part of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. He rattles off the exact answer. That's weird, y'all. He asked the question in the first place. If he knew the answer, why did he ask the question? It's exposing that there's some ulterior motive underneath him. And Jesus' response to him is, well, commending. He says, yep, that's it. You got it. Just do those things perfectly. Love the Lord your God with every part of yourself and love your neighbor as yourself and you will inherit eternal life. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. Done. And the lawyer did this and went on his way. And he lived the rest of his life and obeyed this law perfectly. And now we have this nice, fine moral example to follow. Right? That's not how the story goes. The lawyer gets the right answer here. He knows exactly what he has to do. He has the moral law perfectly down. And yet the conversation continues because he knows he can't quite live that out. When the question is answered, he continues to converse with Jesus because the simplicity of this command is so all-encompassing that he realizes he can't really do that perfectly. He knows the right moral command does not give him the transformed person to live it out. Knowing what's right doesn't necessarily mean we can do it, friends. So Jesus' response is intentionally exposing that we as humans even when we know the right moral code or the right example, have this creeping inability to fully follow it. Something is preventing us from living it out. It turns out nice, neat, tidy moral examples don't actually transform us. And Christianity says the reason for this is sin. But sin is functionally something, even if that language throws us off a little bit, if that's been hard or weaponized or abused in our life, totally get it. What sin functionally is is the tension that many of us feel between the thing that we know we ought to do and our desires to not do it. We know we ought to love God and love our neighbors ourselves, but oftentimes selfishness appeals more. Oftentimes greed appeals more. It's this distance between who we know we ought to be and who we actually are. And so right here, Jesus is informing us that the whole system of human moral earning has to be disrupted because we can't get life that way. No matter how many moral examples we might see, no matter how many Good Samaritan articles we might read, they can't actually do anything to change us. They can show us what we ought to do, but they can't transform us. We can't inherit eternal life by our own willpower. Jesus is saying that we need to end the act of self-justifying. The buck up and do better mentality can't get us into the kingdom. The starting point to eternal life is instead, always, I can't do better and I need help. I'm in need. That's the starting point of the kingdom. So that's the first thing we learned from his interaction with the lawyer and self-justification. Cool. Next up in the story, we get live without loopholes. That's the next thing we learn. See, the lawyer at this point is stuck like the rest of us who realize we can't live this out perfectly, right? He's probably thinking of specific neighbors that he has either failed to love or doesn't want to love, right? Maybe it's the neighbor who throws late parties until 2 a.m. Maybe it's the coworker whose political beliefs are just insane. Maybe it's those vaxxers. Maybe it's those anti-vaxxers. Maybe it's the homeless drunk. Maybe it's the filthy rich. Maybe it's the immigrant or the refugee. Whoever the neighbor is, someone is sticking out in this man's mind, and he is realizing, I can't do this. There's neighbors that I either can't love or don't want to love. And so he asks another question, who is my neighbor? 
He's asking Jesus to define the limits of his love. Define who I have to love so that this is actually achievable. Because you can't possibly mean that I have to love my enemy. You can't possibly mean that I have to love the morally corrupt. You can't possibly mean that. Can you, Jesus? And this happens because the lawyer is still living with his self-justifying perspective. He believes that those who are worthy of love are those who have done the right actions to be worthy of it. If you're unclean or if you're unholy, you haven't earned love. And so I shouldn't be required to love the person who hasn't earned it, right? He's living with a self-justifying perspective. I've got an image here that I think is helpful uh, to, to describe what this looks like. Adam, if you want to throw that. There's two bars on that image, the one I'm looking at. Yeah, nice. So the lawyer is up here, and he sees other people who aren't as morally apt as him, aren't as morally uh, put together as him, or aren't as religiously put together. And he says, look, those people are below the love line, man. Like, they have not earned in their life the level to warrant my love. They're outside of this thing. He's saying that you have to approach a certain level in order to actually experience love. And so we're learning here, friends, that he's trying to create a loophole. He's trying to make it easier on himself so that he can justify himself and so that he can justify his own prejudices. Jesus is exposing in this passage to us that we can only love our neighbor as ourselves if we see ourselves in our neighbor. You can only love your neighbor as yourself if you see yourself in your neighbor. And if you don't, if you think you're elevated, if you think you're better than, you can never actually love your neighbor. If we're ever finding a loophole that causes us not to love the person who lives near us, then we're neglecting what Jesus has called us to be as people. We fail to see ourselves in them. Our neighbor is never defined by a name or a status. They are always defined by a need. So Jesus, in this passage, he's calling us not to be self-justifying people. He's also calling us to live without loopholes. But how do we do that, right? Remember, the whole point was to not have to pull ourselves up to these sorts of standards. That's what Jesus is critiquing. So what's the example he gives us to resolve these problems in ourselves? It's the story of the Good Samaritan. That's the third part of this story. We have to have a dedication to dying. That's what Jesus says we have to do as Christians. He starts the story saying, a man has gone down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, right away, that statement, that sentence is loaded with all sorts of things. First, a man, anonymous. He does not give qualifiers. He does not give validations. He does not say that this is a certain type of man because he wants us to see anyone and everyone in that man. He's not a nice religious man. He's not a nice moral man. He's not a corrupt political man. He's not any type of man other than a man. Our neighbor is not defined by a name. Our neighbor is defined by a need. And the path he's traveling here, it's roughly 18 miles, and it goes downhill. It's a, a crazy steep decline from Jerusalem to Jericho. It goes from about 2,500 feet above sea level to 800 feet below sea level. And it is a treacherous journey. It's through the arid desert of ancient Israel at this time. There's a lot of switchbacks or turns on this road with blind corners. So it's a great place to jump somebody if you want to jump somebody. It's a very narrow and treacherous place. And robbers were known to jump people here. People often traveled in groups because traveling alone could mean a death sentence. This man, first of all, not making a wise decision traveling on his own. It's like climbing a mountain in Phoenix without water, right? Like just not a wise decision. And sure enough, the expected results happened to him. 
There's a part of this road called, it's, it was nicknamed the Pass or the Way of Blood because it was so known that it was a dangerous path. This dude is left half dead after making a not so great decision in his life to travel this road. And then two men pass by, a priest and a Levite. Now these are religious professionals. These, just like the lawyer, are people who know really, really deeply the law of God, have studied it, have practiced it, and have devoted their lives to it. And it's likely that they're leaving their religious service in Jerusalem, in the temple, and walking back home to Jericho. Typically, priests in that time would travel for a couple weeks, do their religious service, and then travel back home. And so we're meant to think that they are leaving directly from the religious service they've been doing. Picture a pastor, me, leaving church after preaching a sermon. That's what's happening here. These are religious professionals on their way home, and they both follow the same pattern. They come, they see, and they pass by. Now, some scholars have pointed out this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's a very narrow road. So to pass by is not like, oh, what's that off in the distance? I must have missed it. To pass by is literally to step over in some cases. There is no way they've avoided this man. They have seen him and they have neglected him. And notice we don't get a reason why. We don't get a justification, and that's intentional. The point of this story is not to show us why the priest and Levite do the right thing, right? The point is to show us that no matter what their justification, they've passed this man by in an opportunity to love him. They could be passing him by because they want to maintain their religious cleanliness, which is an important thing in that culture. They could be passing him by because they realize this dude has made a poor choice and he's brought his own consequences on himself, right? I just have to leave him. He's brought this upon me. They could be passing him by because they have other important religious business to get to. They could be passing him by out of self-preservation because if he is left half dead, where are the robbers that left him half dead, right? They're probably nearby. So they're thinking about all of these justifications. They're putting all of these loopholes together, saying, you know, I, I can't really love him because of this rule. Jesus is showing us, again, that these esteemed, moral, and wise men fail in following God. Why? Because they're unwilling to die to themselves and see themselves in their neighbor. They're unwilling to note that that might just as well be them. They're walking down the same road. If they had come at a different time, it might be them laying on the roadside. They fail to see that, and they instead say, this guy's getting what came to him. He's made poor choices, and this is the result of his poor choices. And then enter the Samaritan. And I think it's important to recognize first the significance of using a Samaritan in this story. Samaritan, at this point, was akin to an offensive slur, if you called someone a Samaritan. There was a great division between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. It was centuries in the making. It came from the time when Assyria had conquered the nation of Israel, Assyria came in, and certain people started to intermarry with the Assyrians and bring some of their religious practices into the Jewish religious practices. And so they were corrupt heretics, inbred half-breeds. It was religious, it was social, it was geographic. There was a sharp division. To call someone a Samaritan would be to call them less than human. And notice that the most human person here is the Samaritan. Jesus is unworking all of the prejudice, prejudices that existed in his day. And what does the Samaritan do?